let's take our Bibles and talk more about that this morning. We're going to be in Acts chapter 3. And let me just echo what Randy said earlier. Wasn't last Sunday night such a blessing? And such a joy to be with our brothers and sisters from Chicago Tabernacle, to be encouraged by their ministry. Some of you have been down there before, and uh, some of you have never been exposed to their ministry. But I'm telling you, these are sincere, godly people. And uh, if you saw just, if you were there helping set up, and thank you for all who did, the attitude that they carried, um, no no arrogance, no pride, just a genuine love. I, when I'm with that church, I feel like I'm home again. It's just... There's such an affinity with them. And uh, I can't imagine anybody walked away last Sunday night not feeling spiritually refreshed. Am I right? That, that we walked away going, wow, I wish that service hadn't ended. Um, and I, I'm just, I, I, let me just say this as an encouragement to us. That when Julie and I f- first started going down there 10 years ago, um, their church was half the size of our church right now. And they were using um, tracks. And they would have, when they'd have prayer meeting, they'd have 15 or 20 people show up. And I, I'm not telling you that to say anything other than um, Pastor Toledo was so uh, encouraged by our church and so encouraged about the future of our church. And I sat there with him as the choir was singing, and I thought, in 10 years, that's us. In 10 years, that's what we look like if the Lord tarries that long. That, that's how God will work in us, and that's how God will bless us. So I want to say that as an encouragement to you and, and just um, thanking you for your support and to keep pressing on as God continues to move in our midst. Uh, one of the things that you, I hope, got out of that service was power and the power of God and the power of people that are unashamed and boldly proclaim the name of the Lord and and talk about the love of the Lord. It's just the most minuscule taste of what heaven's going to be like. I mean, just the tiniest iota, the tiniest fragment. Imagine that times tens and tens and tens and tens and tens of billions. That's what heaven will be like. And if you were blessed and encouraged then, imagine eternity doing that. Uh, you know, I used to think when I was a kid, I'm going to be so bored in heaven. I hope have golf courses. My theology was really poor back then. But uh, just imagine what it's going to be like to see the Savior and, and really proclaim the Lord reigns. So um, just want to remember that. That's a little taste of heaven. And I want us to be reminded that we have power through the Holy Spirit, don't we? That that power that was on display last night and the power that's on display when we meet on Sunday mornings, on Wednesday nights, is from the Holy Spirit. And He indwells us and fills us and He'll continue to utilize us in amazing ways in the days ahead. And it's that kind of power that we see here in the text this morning in Acts 3. We saw the first part of it last week with the, the account of the healing of this lame beggar in verses 1 to 11. And it shows again, that power shows again in the sermon that Peter preaches right after that healing. Now, this is an amazing scene, and it's very similar to what happened at Pentecost. The crowd rushes to where the apostles are, in this case, just Peter and John, and they are stunned. They're amazed. They, they're overwhelmed. That's really what the, the word is meaning here. They're overwhelmed by, um, by what's going on. And unknown to them, 
their hearts and their minds are very open and receptive at this point. They're just coming to find out, all right, we had this thing that happened at Pentecost, and the apostles were speaking our languages, and, and there was amazing stuff, and 3,000 people get saved, and then you have the healing of this beggar, and then all of a sudden the people are rushing in again. And what we need to understand, even at the outset this morning, is that their hearts are ready. Their hearts are open. They're receptive to what Peter is about to say. And you know, if I, I believe that if we could really look into the, the hearts of people, if we could really get inside their minds, the people we interact with every day, the person at the grocery store, or the coworker, or the neighbor, or the friend who's hurting, or whatever the case may be, if we could really get inside their hearts and minds, I believe we would be shocked at how open people are to hearing about the love of the Lord. I think we would be amazed at how ready people are to hear about God's forgiveness through Christ. How do I know that? I know that because I'm struck again and again by how dissatisfied people are. How unhappy people are. How how little hope they genuinely have. And I believe that they're wanting to see power from heaven like we see in Acts 3 and like we saw last Sunday night. But they're going to have to see it in our lives too. I'm not talking about mysticism. I'm not talking about clever tactics that, that draw attention to ourselves. I'm talking about an authentic verification of the presence and control of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And that manifests itself in boldness in our speech and purity in our character and confidence in our faith. How many of you think that people would actually be drawn to that? Don't, didn't, you, didn't you Monday morning think, I want to I go back to church. I, I want to go back and, and, and experience that again because it's so powerful. People are waiting to see that kind of power in their lives. And they don't. People are going through their day. They're a little depressed because the Packers aren't playing today. And tomorrow's November or Tuesday's November, and it's going to be a dreary week, and it's going to get colder, and daylight savings ends next week, and the economy stinks, and the election's a year away, and nobody knows what to do with that, and the world's falling apart, and Europe can't take care of itself, and on and on and on and on and on. What do people have to look forward to tomorrow? Why do you think people are rushing out even now to just buy and buy and buy? You, you walk in, I was, I was in a store the other day that was having a toy sale. You would never know there was a recession in this country by what I watched. People were jamming the aisles, carts loaded. It was October. Trying to find some kind of comfort. People will spend like crazy at Christmas because they're trying to find something that will give them comfort. What they need is tidings of comfort and joy. They don't need more stuff. I need no more stuff in my life. I got enough stuff. I need to get rid of half my stuff. And yet, people will keep piling it on because they think that's where satisfaction comes from. What they really need is the power of God in their lives. And if they see it in us, then they'll realize that can happen for me too. I can know assurance of salvation. I can know the blessing of God's favor and help. Don't forget, and we've said this often, that these men and women that we see in Acts 3 just months before were powerless and insecure and fearful, 
but now you can't stop them. They're so much stronger than the people that have just put Christ to death. And Luke's narrative here is so descriptive. We're going to see it starting in verse 11 in a second. The beggars clinging to Peter and John. And the crowd's running over. And they're full of amazement. And I love it. Peter goes right at the people with the truth. Let's read it, starting in verse 11. While the beggar was clinging to Peter and John, all the people, the words are very important now, don't just glide over that, all the people ran together to them at the so-called portico of Solomon, full of amazement. When Peter saw this, he replied to the people, men of Israel, why are you amazed at this, or why do you gaze at us as if by our own power or piety we had made him walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, but put down to, excuse me, put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we're all witnesses. Do you think he's gotten his point? Stop and look up. Do you think he's gotten his point across to them through the use of his professive pronouns here? But you did it, and you did it, and Pilate wanted to release them, but you did it, and we witnessed it. Okay, you got the message here? You got what Peter's saying? And on the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know, and the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health to the presence of you all. And now, brothers... Again, he's speaking to them as a fellow Jew. I know that you acted in ignorance, just as your rulers did also. But the things which God announced before him by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Therefore, verse 19, repent and return, so that your sins may be wiped away, in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your, from your um, brethren. To, who, to him you shall give heed to everything he says to you. And it will be that every soul that does not heed the prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and successors onward who also announced these days. It's to you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. For you first God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. Now look back at verse 11 for a minute and let's try to refresh the context a little bit. The beggar has been healed. The people have watched. They see him walking around and jumping around and yelling and screaming like I did at the end of the message last week. And, and he's going crazy. And the verse says that he's still clinging to them like they're walking. He's like, no, don't leave me. Stay with Oh, I'm praise. I mean, you just imagine this, okay? And as this is happening, how easy and tempting do you think it would be at this point for Peter and John to do what we're all tempted to do? to take some credit for themselves. Now, they had been directly responsible for the miracle, so the crowd 
was in awe of them at this point. The crowd is amazed at what's happening and, and the power that they have. And at this point, they, they would have the perfect time to elevate themselves and to gain some, some clout and the leverage with the crowd, especially because the other apostles aren't around. This is the perfect opportunity, to use a, a business word, to position themselves as the primary apostles. Peter, James, and John, we know that there were three that were especially close to Jesus. James isn't there at this point, so it's Peter and John. And if their ego gets into them in any way, shape, or form, at this point they can say, look at what we've done, look at who we are, look at the power we have, the apostles aren't around, so let's take advantage of this. And, and if there's ever a moment to advance a personal agenda, it's right here. Verse 11. The crowd's amazed. The beggars clinging, the people are ready to hear. If any time you could say, look at me, this is it right here. But I want you to look at Peter's words in verse 12, because they show just how laughable that thought would have been to them. Peter immediately directs any thoughts that the crowd apparently had about their authority or their ability in the miracle. He directs any of those thoughts away from himself and John, and toward the Lord. One of the reasons that the Spirit of God details the immature, self-focused thinking of the apostles before the resurrection is to contrast what it looks like to live for yourself and what it looks like to live under his control. It also reminds us that any power that we have, listen now, always comes from the Holy Spirit. And the power is always intended to point people away from us and to point them more clearly to Jesus Christ. Hear that now. Anytime there is power in our lives, it is from the Holy Spirit. Anytime that power is being utilized, it is for the express and singular purpose of pointing people to Christ. Now, those two facts alone should eliminate in us any desire for attention or credit when the Lord uses us or blesses our ministry. And this is something that is very innate in us, even when we're serving the Lord. We want to be noticed. We want people to know what it took to serve and how much we sacrificed and how willing we were to make ourselves available to the Lord. I'll tell you right now, I'll confess to you, I have felt that urge so many times. I can't even count how many times I felt that urge. Even sometimes in the middle of a sermon. I'll be preaching along and I'll hear in my head, boy, that was a really good point. The people really, boy, they really hung on to that, didn't they? And if you believe that, you kind of go, yeah, that was really good. You doing pretty good this morning. I've actually heard preacher, a preacher say that. How am I doing? I'm doing great, aren't I? No, once that thought hits, you've got to say, no, 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 no. This is not you. This is not about you. The enemy so desperately wants to deflect the credit away from the Lord and get us to believe that we deserve it. And that appeal is so subtle. And if we give in to it, it's not only going to damage the body, but it's going to damage our reputation. How many know that every good and perfect gift comes from where? Tell me. Above. 
Not from my training, not from my ability, not from my confidence in how to speak to people, not in looks, not in how you dress, not in how you manipulate a service, not in any of that. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. It is His power in and through us. We are just His representatives for His work. So anytime something takes place that has spiritual effectiveness, anytime something takes place that impacts the life of another person, we need to be very, very, very quick to give all the credit to the Lord and to refuse any thought or attention for ourselves. Now look at what Peter says in verse 12. This is verified in that verse. He says, wait, 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 wait. Beggars clinging, people are thronging, everybody's amazed, talking, 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 talking. Picture the scene now, get this. The whole crowd's gathered. Peter says, stop, hold on. Why are you looking at us? Why why are you amazed? Why do you think that through some kind of power and holiness on our part that, that we've done this, that this guy's walking. You can kind of hear the tone in his voice, all right? Infuse yourself into the text now. He, if we were going to say this in kind of street language, he'd go, please, seriously? Seriously? You know who we are, right? You're, you've watched us. I'm not, I'm not a secret to you. You know me. I'm Peter. I walk with Christ. Uh, okay, stop for a second. You think John and I have the personal ability somehow to make this guy walk? Seriously? Not in a million years. Do you really imagine, as you look at us and you see this guy dancing around, that that somehow in the last three months we've developed the power and authority in ourselves to heal somebody? However, I can tell you that there is only one who has the power and authority to heal this guy. And I can tell you why it happened. Do you guys remember Jesus, who you crucified, and you rejected, and who rose from the grave, and we all witnessed it? Listen now, crowd. It's by faith in his name that that guy's walking. Not me. Come on. Come on. Stop that conversation. Stop all the little gossip that that we're some kind of miracle workers. It wasn't about us. It was about Jesus. And, and crowd, here's the, here's the important decision you have to come to. What are you going to do with that? See, look at verse 13. In explaining this, Peter uses very distinct words, two very distinct words to clarify their opposition to Christ. He says, The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant, Jesus the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate. As Peter is speaking, the Holy Spirit gives him words that have tremendous significance, especially for a Jewish audience. Now remember, he's speaking to Jews as a Jew. It's applicable to us in terms of the truths, but this is a message to the Jews. And the two verbs he uses there have very important significance to the Jews. Look at them, okay? Number one, delivered. Delivered is an action word. We deliver a package or we 
uh, deliver a baby or we deliver bad news. It, to, to deliver something denotes deliberate action. There's an intentionality behind it. And the word in the Greek means to hand over and give the power to deal with and judge. In other words, he says, you did a deliberate action to purposely hand over Jesus for the intent of him being judged. That wasn't your right, but you are culpable for it. And let me remind you that when Pilate said, "Mm -mm, I'm washing my hands of this, I will have nothing to do with this. Jesus has done nothing wrong. I deliver him to you. What did the people yell? Okay, no. Crucify him. Kill him. Give us a murderer. We'd rather have Barabbas, who was bad beyond imagination. We'd rather have him than that guy. And you know what? Let's take some extra responsibility. You put his blood on us and on our children. There was a deliberateness to what happened. And Peter says, you delivered Christ. There's no doubt. There's no equivocation. This was an intentional rejection. And then he goes on, look at the second word he uses. He says, twice you disowned him. Now that in itself is a strong word. It means to deny and refuse something being offered, which in itself is a serious charge. But but in the Jewish culture, it was particularly evocative. To disown somebody in the Hebrew culture meant to intentionally, vehemently, and continuously disassociate yourself from them forever. For instance, if a Jewish child decided to marry a Gentile person, the family could say, you are disowned. Not only are you part of the inheritance, but we now will treat you like you're dead. You will be nothing to us. We will not associate with you. Your friends will not associate with you. Nobody that's connected to this family will have anything to do with you. You are an outcast, you are rejected, and we never want to see you again. Now he says, using that word, you crowd, you Jews, disowned Christ. If anything, it should have been the other way around. When we sin, God should have said, "Mm, I'm done with you. Forget it. My children, no, no. You've done something so reprehensible to my holiness that I don't want anything to do with you. Did God say that? He said, I'm going to send my son. And he's going to be your substitute. And he's going to take all your sins upon himself. And he's going to die for you so that you can be saved. If anything, God should have disowned us. But he says to the crowd, You disown him. So think about the implications of what he's telling the crowd at this point. He's not only reminding them that they resisted and rejected Jesus, but he's saying you purposely and passionately denied his presence and you chose a murderer over the Holy One who alone can give you eternal life. Now you would think, stop for a minute, just just pause for a second. You would think that with such a strong accusation and such strong words, that the people would start to riot and they would pick up stones and say, you're not going to talk to us that way. We're going to kill you. You would think that this would produce emotional bedlam. 
How dare you accuse us of that? How dare you call us out? Who do you think you are? We don't care if you killed, uh, healed that guy. We don't care. We're going to kill you. Pick up some stones. Let's stone them. That'll happen in three chapters. But at this moment, the crowd is so overwhelmed by their understanding of what's going on that Peter keeps going. Can you imagine such a thing? Sometimes as a preacher, you kind of go, ooh, crowd's not with me. Better just pray. Uh Uh-uh. He keeps going. Look back at verse 16. He says, let me tell you who Jesus is and what he's done. And he points to the man who's now walking and leaping and praising God. And he says, it's on the basis of faith in the name of Jesus that that guy's walking around. You saw it happen, and I'm telling you right now, neither John or I had the power to make it happen. It's all because of Jesus. And then he keeps going. And he gets down to what really needs to be said in verse 17. He says, it's out of ignorance that you and the leaders did this. Now, there are a couple examples in this passage that the Lord is gracious and compassionate and slow to anger and rich in love. And this is the first one. Because they had had Jesus for three years, teaching and healing and serving and showing such a clear contrast between the religious corruption and hypocrisy of the Pharisees and who Jesus was. Nothing he had done had been impure or self-serving in any way, and they had watched lives literally be changed by his hand. So it would have been a stretch for anyone to sit there in that small little country that Jesus had traversed for three years and say, I don't understand. I don't get it. What's going on now? Who's Jesus? What, what, he's healing people? I haven't heard about this. And, and, and he cast demons out of a demoniac and, and, and people were raised from the dead and, and, and the woman didn't have a hemorrhage anymore and Jairus' daughter was raised. What, what are you talking about? I haven't heard about this. There's not one person in the country, I believe, that could have said, I have no idea what's going on. Or, knowing the Old Testament, knowing the Pentateuch, knowing the prophets, could have said, I, I, I'm clouded, I'm ignorant, I don't see any correlation to God's word. And Peter reminds them of that. You had the prophets, every one of them pointed toward Jesus, the fact that he would suffer and die. So even if you didn't see Jesus in person, you should have known who he was. The facts were indisputable. And yet, look at the verse. The Spirit still directs Peter to say, you were ignorant about it. You didn't get it. You didn't understand. But now you do. Now you not only have the facts of who Jesus was and what he does, now you not only have the fact of the prophets, but now, crowd, listen now, you've seen evidence directly of his power, and it's evidenced in this lame man, and the lame man is still singing and dancing and running around. Can you picture that? Because they could. He didn't just disappear into the shadows. What, what, what happened? I heard there was a lame guy. What happened? Oh, I don't know. I think it was probably trickery. No, this guy's still, yeah, I'm not going to do it again because my face hurts, okay? Yeah, no, he's, 
going crazy and he's cleaning the apostles and they're dragging him around and he's yelling and screaming. And, and they say, okay, here, look at him. Even if you didn't see Jesus in person, even if you didn't get the correlation with the prophets, look at him. He's the evidence of Jesus. He's the evidence of God's power. Now, it's decision time. Look at the verse. Verse 19. Therefore, in other words, as a conclusion to what we've said, therefore, repent and return to the Lord. The focus is both personal and national. So your sins can be wiped away. Stop right there. We'll get to the rest of the verse in a minute. Here is the second evidence of God's amazing love and mercy. Because it's a reminder not only of the history of the past three months. Listen now, Jewish audience. It's not only a reminder of what's happened in the last three months. It's also a reminder of what's happened in the last three millenniums. Even after all the instances of Israel's rebellion, and if you read the Old Testament, there are many. Even after all the instances of Israel's disobedience and and their push against God and, and all the things that they did to reject God and God had to punish them and there were bad kings and they worshiped idols and then God would bring good kings and they'd follow for a while and they'd fall away and on and on and the nation divides and they get sent into captivity and Babylon and Assyria and then Nehemiah comes back and rebuild the walls and then the people fall again. It's a mess. Even after all of that junk, all that rebellion and defiance, God never took his eyes off of them and never stopped having a plan for them, and he still hasn't. Now think about that. That's an amazing thought. God's mercy is such that he is still willing to forgive Israel. He is still willing to exonerate them despite all their past and present and future failures. And he is willing to do the same for you and I. I've been saved 38 years and I still sin sometimes like I'm not even saved. Why does God continue to be patient? Because he is unbelievably merciful. And he is still willing to forgive. He is still willing to to show amazing love and extensive mercy. But listen, the availability of his mercy doesn't mean we can just expect him every time to just look away and say it's no big deal. That's why Peter says in verse 19, repent and return. Listen, there may be some of you here this morning that need to hear that call. You've drifted away from the Lord. Maybe you never even knew him. But you've rejected him with the way you're living. And maybe you were there Sunday night, your heart was stirred by the choir, and you listened to Pastor Al's message about leaving the past behind and moving forward toward the new, and you left and you felt drawn to return to the Lord. You were excited and you got home and you prayed. But Monday morning, you went right back to how you were living. And maybe now you've convinced yourself, well, what's the difference? Why should I return and repent to the Lord? I'm doing fine. I prayed for forgiveness once, and and I'm covered. I go to church. I'm here today, Paul. Come on. I do all the things I'm supposed to do, and besides, I see other Christians living for themselves. So what's the point? Listen, that was the same rationale that the Jews had. Justifying their self-centeredness, resistant to faith, unwilling to separate themselves to the Lord, 
until it got to the point of openly rebelling against him. And let me tell you, that's always the end result of sin. Eventually, if we walk in sin, we are going to openly rebel against the Lord. There is an obvious consequence to rejecting God's commands and pushing back against him and refusing to yield our lives. That's bad enough. But let me close with this. There's also something that Peter mentions that we miss out on when we refuse to reject sin and be cleansed. And if what I just described is you this morning, I hope you'll hear from verse 19 what you can only experience if you are living for the Lord. Look back at the verse. Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. I love that phrase, times of refreshing. In fact, if you look underneath the logo of our church, it says a place to be refreshed. That is our goal as a church, that this place will refill you and strengthen you spiritually so you and I can go out and do the work of ministry and spreading the gospel. The harbor is the place where you come in and you get encouraged by those you love and you get restocked for the work and then you go back out. So this tabernacle, this church is designed to be a place where we will be filled with a fresh understanding of God's word and we will have a fresh filling of his spirit, and we will have a fresh desire for the work of ministry. Now, when you look back at verse 19, Peter says that when our hearts are right with the Lord, God does another work of refreshing in our lives, and it comes from the presence of the Lord. Family and friends are wonderful and necessary, but how many know that they are a poor substitute for being in the presence of the Lord? That's why prayer is so valuable, even more so than worship and preaching and church services and serving the community. And those are all the things that the churches, uh, uh, including ours, are preoccupied with. But it's easy to forget that when we pray, we are right there standing in the presence of the Lord as one of his children. And he is there on the throne of grace, ready to listen and respond. And the Bible says that in his presence there is fullness of joy. And this verse says that in his presence there are times of refreshing. It's a great word in the Greek language. Let me bore you with one more Greek word, okay? This word refreshing is only used in all the Bible in Acts 3.19. And let me tell you what it means. It means to revive with fresh air and to cool you off so you can breathe easily again. What a tremendous spiritual principle. That's got to appeal to just about everything in us, especially with some of the junk in our lives and some of the spiritual opposition that many of us are facing. Listen now this morning, church. The Lord is promising cool air for our spirit. He's saying, when you come into my presence... I will make your heart and mind revived emotionally and spiritually so you can experience the joy that is only experienced 
when you are close to me. But listen, sin will block that. And even our response to sin will block that. If we're stubborn like the Israelites, this is going to be this is going to hurt all of us a little bit, including myself, because I'll tell you, and my family will confirm, I struggle with stubbornness. So if we're stubborn like the Israelites and we refuse to repent and refuse to say we're sorry and refuse to renounce our sin, guess what? There will be no refreshing. And if we keep walking in a direction that's contrary to him, like the Israelites wandering in meaningless circles for 40 years in the wilderness, and then figuratively and literally for thousands of years more, there will be no refreshing. This is written to God's people. This is not to some heathens that that didn't get it at all, that didn't know anything about Jesus. Peter's not speaking to, to an uneducated, unspiritual crowd. He is speaking to the people that were called God's people. The ones who were near Jesus, the one who knew that he was the Lord, but they didn't care. It it didn't matter that they had the prophets. It didn't matter that they were Jewish. It didn't matter that they were in Jerusalem or that God had blessed Abraham or that they were the children of the covenant. Listen now, if our hearts are hardened, all of that means nothing. For centuries, they had said, we don't want God. And the prophet said, you're God's chosen people, and God's got a plan. And God promised to Abraham that he'd make you a great nation. And he promised to David that the kingdom would be forever. Israel, wake up! And the people said, we don't care. And God never stopped with his plan. Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, then the world. But he started with the Jews. And Peter says, you had all the warning signs. You had all the truth. You were sons of the covenant. Your forefathers talked directly to God. And your hearts are hardened. And if you keep it up, verse 23, God promises that he will destroy you. If you don't repent and return to him, he will destroy you. You've had enough warnings. But, here's the positive. Look at verses 19 and 26. When you do repent and return, he will not only cleanse you, but he will bless you. Blessing only comes from turning from wickedness. There is no other option. And when we turn by God's love and mercy, he is willing to accept us because we turned. So here's the question. We're done. What describes your life this morning? Would you look at your life and say, I am in a constant state of refreshing and power? Or would you look at your life and say, I am dry and barren and weak? Is God's hand of blessing and leading clearly on you? Do you have confidence as you go about the rest of the day and tomorrow heading into your week? 
that you can trust him and you're full of joy that you can do that and it's wonderful and it's life-giving and you're strong and, and there are trials and there's opposition, but, but you will trust or do you feel lost and confused and uncertain and, and unfulfilled? Are you breathing easy spiritually? Are you gasping for air? Panting. Spiritually, because of all the pressure you feel, the Spirit leaves very little middle ground here. It is one or the other, even for those who know the Lord and have followed Him forever. We are either hungry for the presence of the Lord and drawing near with every opportunity that we get, or we are shying away from Him to the point of resisting Him and not trusting Him and rejecting Him and running from Him with little desire to be in His presence. But make no mistake, because His Word is clear. Spiritual refreshing and revival of our hearts, according to this passage, only comes from his presence. And we can only be in his presence when sin has been intentionally removed from our lives and we have renounced it and God has said, I'll wipe it clean. But to expect that we're going to go into the presence of the Lord and experience refreshing and be revived while we're still clinging to our sin is a farce. One of the reasons why we worshiped with those people Sunday night and why they exuded such joy and power is that they are walking closely with the Lord and they're unashamedly grateful for His mercy and they tell people about it and as we saw at the end, they boldly call on His name. Now, as a place to be refreshed, that should characterize us and this church. The first step is to resist any inclination to assume credit for what only the Lord can do. The second step is to yield fully to the Lord and trust Him fully to strengthen us and help us. And third, we are called to repent and return. Continually, daily, moment by moment, God, forgive me of my pride. God, forgive me of my sin. God, forgive me of my weakness. God, forgive me of my fear. God, forgive me of my doubt. You are faithful. You are good. You are Lord of all. And as I come into your presence, Father, I don't deserve it, but you'll say you'll do it. Refresh me. Pour your spirit out over me and refresh me. How many know that he will do this in our midst when our hearts are right? He will do it because the Lord is good. And he is faithful. And his mercy is for all generations. Let's call on his name together. Let's pray. Let me take just a minute because it's earlier than usual to just ask you to go before the Lord for about a minute. allow his spirit now to do his work of convicting 
I've been convicted of so many things that have happened this week that have been displeasing to the Lord in my own life, and it's humbling. But if we don't confess that and bring that to Him and say, Father, I I don't want to live that way. Cleanse me. Purify me. Refresh me. If If we just cling to that, we're just going to be stagnant and dry and unhappy. So I don't know what's going on in your life this morning. This is between you and the Lord. I'm not going to ask you to come forward or raise your hand or do anything other than just be in the presence of the Lord. And if there's junk in there, you need to cleanse it out. You need to ask God to remove it and to keep it removed. And then you need to make an intentional decision not to run back to it. Father, you're the only one that shows mercy. You're the only one who can heal. You're the only one that can cleanse. You're the only one who can impart righteousness on our lives. You're the only one who's patient, compassionate, long-suffering, slow to anger, rich in love. You're the only one. Lord, what a privilege this morning. What a, a humbling honor to know you and to know about your grace and mercy and to experience your love and forgiveness every single day. Forgive us of our arrogance. Forgive us of our spiritual immaturity. Lord, we long for times of refreshing. Not once a year, not every six months, but every day because you promised that. Your mercy is new every single morning. You're just waiting to refresh us. But so much of whether that happens is determined by how we live. Lord, I pray for a fresh work in our midst, in my life, in each member of this congregation's lives, in this church, that you would do a work of refreshing, that we would look back to this Sunday, October 30, 2011, and say that's when the Lord started that work of refreshing that has changed us. Lord, change our ministry, change our lives, change our witness, change our outreach, change our effectiveness, change our prayer so that we would see a mighty work being done in our midst so that we could come back and say, that's nothing we did. That's everything that the Lord did. We will give you the honor. We will give you the praise. Father, I pray you'd stir us this morning. Maybe we came in unexpected, but stir us. 
I pray for those, Lord, this morning that are struggling with chronic sin, that, that are having trouble breaking free of the bonds of that. Lord, cause them to fall at your feet right now. May they recognize how wonderful your mercy is and how it can free those bonds so that we can walk in newness of life. Lord, we love you so much and we praise you for what you have done. We're overwhelmed by it. Keep us overwhelmed this week. So we almost can't even stand because we're just so amazed at how much you love us. We praise you and we honor you, Lord, because you're the only one who gets that credit, who's worth that. You're worthy of all our praise. And we love you and praise you in Jesus' name.